0: This is Beyond the Big Screen Podcast with your host, Steve Guerra.
1: In this podcast, we will do exactly what the name of the podcast suggests. We will go beyond the big screen. By which I mean, we will search for the real background, context, and true story behind movies. We will interview guest experts and authors to find out what the real story is behind our favorite books, films, television shows, genres, and much more. I will see you next time beyond the big screen. No, not that one. (laughs) I mean, yeah, usually that is what you say. It is, but I didn't like how it came out of my mouth. Hello, and welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry.
0: And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 107, Pope Nicholas I, also occasionally known as Nicholas the
1: Great. I don't know anything about this guy. Yeah, and he's a great, sort of. Maybe. And I can't wait to hear our jingle.
0: Oh, and it's going to be a great jingle.
1: Nicholas, he's looking okay. Nicholas, he's better than the last guy. Nicholas, he's pretty darn neat. Maybe we could call him Nick the Great.
0: So let's talk about this, The Greatness. Because when we covered our other greats, Leo and Gregory, I said that these two were the only two with this epithet. And officially, this is still true.
1: What? Yeah, it's still officially true that
0: Leo and Gregory are our only greats. However, I have also occasionally mentioned that there are two popes who are often argued as being worthy of being a great. One, of course, is Pope John Paul II. And the other is Nicholas the first. And in fact, in quite a lot of sources, Nicholas is already called the great. And many scholars, church historians and Catholics have pushed to see him officially recognized. They absolutely believe that he can hold his own with Leo and Gregory and that his papacy stands firm in the traditions that those greats have already established. In The Political Pretensions of Pope Nicholas, historian Frederick A. Norwood says, When Pope Nicholas was consecrated, no one could have foreseen the series of political and ecclesiastical upheavals more like the thunderbolts of Jupiter than the benedictions of St. Peter, by which the new occupant of the Holy See won fame for himself, prestige for the papacy, and a dignity to be called the Great. Few popes hold a more dominating place in the history of the Catholic Church than Nicholas I. And in an article called The Legacy of Pope St. Nicholas the Great, author Matthew B. Rose says of Nicholas not being recognized, quote, They have forgotten a pope so grand, so profound, that in his lifetime he dealt with direct challenges to his papal authority, meeting each with metal rivaling most of his papal peers. He was Pope St. Nicholas the Great, a pope who in both thought and deed transformed the papacy of his day and the church as a whole. So, Fry, you and I are going to go on this journey. And we're going to have a look at the papacy of Pope Nicholas. And by the end, we will decide once and for all whether Nicholas deserves greatness or not. All right. Okay. Isn't it strange that this is one you know nothing about and yet he gets such incredible praise?
1: Yeah, it's a little weird. We're going to change that. Perhaps St. Nicholas is only Santa and this guy (laughs) gets second fiddle.
0: Ooh, this St. Nicholas certainly
1: has a punchy approach, if you will. So maybe he is punchy old St. Nicholas after all. He was the punchy old St. Nicholas the whole time.
0: (laughs) It would not surprise me at all. Nicholas was born in Rome to a distinguished noble family. His father, Theodore, was a defensor, which is essentially a city magistrate intended to advocate for the citizens. He's defending the citizens. Great. As follows, Nicholas was well educated, and if we take the Liber Pontificalis at its description, he was also a weird child. Or at least a very serious and unchildlike one. Quote From his earliest childhood, this blessed man's acts shone forth clearly to everyone and were famed for their incorrupt character. His holy actions distinguished him so beautifully that he took no dishonorable delight in any game or anything else that children are wont to do.
1: He's a weird child who doesn't play with other children.
0: It goes on to describe how he dedicated himself to purity and humility and study, and how he was far more interested in engaging with adults than with other children.
1: Man, did he get bullied? It sounds like he got bullied. He would be a prime candidate for
0: bullying, I think.
1: Or at least being that, you know, party pooper child who's like, I am above this. I want to go and talk. I tonight. do not want to play your games. I would like to sit on the computer instead. Yeah, essentially. And for this reason, Nicholas was entered into the church early. Oh, you're such a little killjoy that you come to the church early. Whew. That's not real great. Well, in the church's eyes, it certainly is. He's not well adjusted. No,
0: he really isn't well adjusted, but it kind of works for him. So, for the next 15 years, Nicholas rose through the ranks of the Lateran. Pope Sergius II made him a subdeacon, Pope Leo IV made him a deacon, and Pope Benedict III kept him on as a chief advisor. So, by the time that Pope Benedict III died, or, as the Liber Pontificalis so dramatically says, drank the cup of precious death. Nicholas was substantially regarded as a wholly learned, and experienced man, despite being quite young.
1: Uh, okay. Doogie Hauser. He is. Yeah. We're going to talk about that too. Yeah.
0: And when Benedict III died in April of 858, something unexpected happened. Emperor Louis II showed up in Rome, or more accurately, he had already been in Rome quite briefly and he'd left, but when he heard of the pontiff's death, he whirled right around and came back. Perhaps the whole debacle of the last election and the embarrassing position that the Frankish emperor had found himself in, maybe he just wanted to ensure that everything went smoothly this time. That being said, most historians chalk this up to Louis wanting to throw his influence around and make the election go his way. And since Nicholas was of noble birth and already had widespread support, Louis chose him as the candidate to support. Practically, Louis didn't really accomplish anything here, except to maybe increase some pre-existing enthusiasm for Nicholas. But I definitely have an image of Louis stomping around in a cape yelling influence as if he were actually accomplishing anything at all. Although the Frankish sources, like the Annals of St. Burton, do want to credit him for this election. Ah, yes, it was all the emperor and not this little Doogie Hauser pope child man. But either way, Nicholas was elected easily. And after the usual I am not worthy dog and pony show, he was paraded from the Basilica of San Silvestro in Capite to St. Peter's to be consecrated, and then to the Lateran to be enthroned, all with the emperor in attendance. Now, interestingly, in his book, The Popes During the Carolingian Empire, historian Horace K. Mann takes a moment to point out that it was sometime around this period that the popes were also crowned as part of their consecration ceremony, wherein an actual crown was placed upon their head. Now, obviously, this would have come into vogue in correlation with the temporal power exercised by the popes in the papal states.
1: A couple of episodes ago, we mentioned that somebody gave the pope a bunch of crowns. Yes,
0: yeah, and so now they are using this in their ceremony to represent, hey, we now have temporal power as an authority as well. As well. But Mann argues that this aspect of the consecration may have had a particular effect upon Nicholas, who we'll see goes on to have a very strong view of papal supremacy, both in the spiritual and temporal world. Keep this in mind, this is a man who is taking his crown very seriously. After the consecration, the new pope celebrated with a banquet with the emperor, and then Louis departed Rome for his camp outside of the city. Pope then visited Louis in his camp again soon after, and during his visit, the emperor is said to have led the pope's horse himself on foot, which of course brings to mind Emperor Constantine leading Pope Sylvester as a papal groom all the way back in the golden legend. Keep that in mind. We're going to be talking about that whole donation of Constantine thing again.
1: Oh, really? That was so long ago. Oh, but it's so,
0: so relevant at this point in history. All this is to say that by the time Emperor Louis left Rome, the Pope and the Emperor are on very good, very cordial terms. Things are off to a strong start. And continuing that strong start, Nicholas immediately gets to work. And the first place that he is going to assert himself is in Ravenna with the Archbishop, John. Now, this is the same John of Ravenna that we discussed in Pope Leo IV's episode, and we're going to be talking about him for much of the same reason. So to recap, John is yet another Archbishop in the ongoing tradition in Ravenna who aggressively pursues an independent or autocephalous Ravenna, and resists the authority of the Pope at every turn. But John takes it to a whole new level. You see, John feels totally fat and sassy in his position because his brother is the Duke of Amelia, which is the province Ravenna is in, and both brothers are very much in the good graces of Emperor Louis for previous military service. So they have ecclesiastical power, they have temporal power, and they have imperial favor. Now, couple that with the Revenese trend of bishops overstepping their bounds whenever they get tied to the Franks, and this is a recipe for disaster for the church. And disaster is exactly how it played out. And the complaints against John for exceptional abuses of power were numerous. He violated the rights and jurisdictions of the bishops under him. He forbade or prevented visits or appeals to Rome. He resisted all arguments for papal primacy, going so far as to forge documents to set precedents for Ravenna's independence against Rome. There were even some charges of Christological heresy
1: thrown at him.
0: Oh no, we
1: know how those
0: go. But in the Liber Pontificalis, we get a solid description of John's activities. Quote, Some he rashly excommunicated, some he turned aside from their visitation to the Apostolic See, and the possessions of some he seized without legal judgment. He stole many of the Holy Roman Church's estates, scored her envoys, and emptied the glory of St. Peter the Apostle as far as in him lay. If he found charters of St. Peter's right in anyone's possession, he tore them up and transferred them to St. Apollinaris' right. Without canonical judgment, he deposed priests and deacons, not only those subject to himself, but those in Amelia who belonged to the Apostolic See. Some he confined in prison, some in filthy workhouses, and others he forced to make written confessions of crimes they had not committed. He also suppressed the church's constitution, with no consent from the Apostolic See. And when summoned to Rome by the Supreme Pontiff, he boasted he had no need to turn
1: up. Oh. It's not good. No. Why are we being sassy? That and sassy, because his brother is the Duke, and he's good friends
0: with the Emperor. Just don't do it. It's just Ravenna being Ravenna. So... These allegations make their way to Nicholas, and in response, he summons John to Rome. But as it says, John ignored the Pope and refused to go. Nicholas summoned John three times, and all three times, John just ignored the Pope.
1: Those are, like, the slowest summons, too. Be like, hey, hey. Hey, come. Come to Rome. Three months later, hey. (laughs) Well... This was not something
0: that was going to fly in Nicholas's pontificate. Gonna get punchy. Yo, he's gonna get so punchy. He was not about to passively accept the uncanonical autonomy of the bishops simply because it was the Carolingian way. And John's relationship with the emperor didn't scare him at all. If John wanted to be the first example of challenging his jurisdiction and his authority as Pope, then Nicholas was going to make an example out of him. So Nicholas convenes the synod in Rome on February 24th of 861 and flat out excommunicates John. Now, generally, we might see like a condemnation or a deposition, but this is excommunication. He's basically saying if you're not going to play by my rules as Pope, Get out. No communion with the church, no sacraments, no association. And this is something that Nicholas is going to make incredible use of to a level we definitely haven't seen before outside of like direct heresy. He is excommunicating people.
1: And this is a shock. Well, he was told three times.
0: Yeah, he was told three times, and he was not expecting this response. And he panics. And he immediately goes to the emperor at Pavia, hoping that with imperial pressure of his friend, the pope would have to walk back the excommunication. And he he does have rapport with Louis the emperor. And Louis sends two imperial missi to accompany John to Rome, presumably to assist him in defending himself and to try and deter Nicholas from maintaining the excommunication. But Nicholas was unmoved by the presence of the legates. In fact, he had nothing to do with them at all because they were communicating with John, who was excommunicated. Oh, no, I can't deal with you. You're dealing with that man? Mm Mm-mm, can't talk to me. Which is a very convenient way around being pushed about by the imperial legates. You just can't talk to me. You're talking to an excommunicated man. Don't bring your filth over here. I don't want to speak to him. So instead, Nicholas convenes a second synod and instructed John and his delegates to attend. At this point, John sees the writing on the wall. If the legates aren't able to bully the Pope into undoing the excommunication, then the synod is likely going to be open ground to expose the whole of John's less-than-canonical oversteps. So instead of attending the synod, he fled back to Ravenna. The synod still went ahead, of course, and John's excommunication was confirmed. But it also seems that Nicholas expected John to flee. So instead of just letting the matter rest there with the excommunication, the Pope decides to go to Ravenna himself and investigate with the clerics and the laity of Ravenna to the full extent of John's misdeeds and to rectify them. So, he's restoring the lands and property that had been seized by John and reestablishing the authorities of suffragan bishops. So, basically, he's showing up and saying, You're going to run away from me. I'm coming to you. Amazing. Beautiful. Historian Robert Joseph Belitsky notes, too, that this represents a fairly rare moment in the history of the church where the people of the diocese are not siding with their bishop by default and they're actually welcoming and inviting the Pope in to rectify the situation. And of course, this is particularly rare because it's Ravenna, which has a history of resisting Rome. They're that against John at this point. Now, unfortunately, although it would be so good, by the time the Pope arrived in Ravenna, John had fled yet again. Back to Pavia, where he intended to prevail upon the emperor for stronger backup. And that is not at all what he received. In Pavia, John was
1: treated as genuinely excommunicate. Oh my gosh, yeah, well, I mean, he did get excommunicated. He did, quoting from the Liber Pontificalis. When the
0: archbishop reached Pavia, when that city's fellow citizens together with their bishop leotard, and yes, I will pause and let you appreciate Uh, that the bishop
1: is leotard,
0: who had been consecrated by the Roman pontiff, heard that the archbishop had been communicated by the supreme pontiff, they gave themselves to so much caution and vigilance that they would not receive him in their homes, nor allow the sale of anything to his men, in case by such trafficking... They might share even in conversation with them, and thereby incur the mark of excommunication. Instead, when they saw any of the archbishop's retinue walking in the streets, they shouted, Those are some of the excommunicated! We must not mix with them! He's literally being shunned. And suddenly, getting an audience with his friend the emperor is proving to be more difficult than before.
1: I appreciate this, all because he said (laughs) he wasn't going to come there and talk to the Pope. Nicholas is not messing around, and Louis refuses to meet with John, and,
0: quote, gave him an order through a go-between, saying, let him go, put aside his overweening arrogance, and humble himself before the great pontiff, to whom we in the church as a whole abase ourselves, and bow our necks in obedience and subjection, there is no other way for him to get what he wants.
1: Even the emperor is telling him, you done, f- boy. Amazing. I know,
0: it's so good. And so by this point, John realized that his ability to resist the Pope was quickly evaporating away. And in November, in yet another synod, John has to relent and submit to the mercy of Pope Nicholas. And Pope Nicholas receives him back into communion and restores him to his bishopric, but firmly and clearly laid out significant restrictions on his authority and jurisdiction and implemented a requirement that John annually come to Rome. He also did hear any remaining grievances against John and settled all canonical matters including that potential heresy, by getting an orthodox declaration of faith from John. No Christological heresies up in here. And so the situation was resolved. Nicholas had won, and the authority of the papacy had been consolidated over Ravenna, and with imperial backing, no less. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, this was short-lived, as John soon entered a pact with the bishops of Trier and Cologne, who were excommunicated for reasons we'll get to shortly. And so he gets excommunicated again, and once more is forced to submit to the Pope.
1: Okay, so he got excommunicated again. Yeah, and he had to come back
0: and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And Nicholas comes out on top.
1: Yeah, well, he would.
0: And he did.
1: And this sets a
0: precedent that Nicholas is absolutely going to carry forward into the rest of his papacy which is that this is not a pope to be trifled with.
1: He'll just excommunicate you. He'll just fire you. Yeah. Apostolic primacy will rule,
0: no matter how fat and sassy the bishop or how influential the monarch. It ain't happening. Which was demonstrated again, as another conflict soon arose, this time with Inkmar, the bishop of Reims. Now, we've discussed Ingmar before in our episode on Leo IV, when he was censured for resisting appeals to Rome and ignoring papal decisions, which again is essentially exactly what we're going to get into. So, much like John, Ingmar was well-established and comfortable in his position. While John had had the force of secular influence behind him, Inkmar had a far-flung and well-respected reputation as a powerful, influential, and forceful bishop. He was capable. He was educated. He was dedicated to church discipline, but he also happened to be ambitious beyond belief and wanted to translate his influence into increased authority everywhere he could. And to be clear, this is not the same situation. It's not as if his goal was to be independent from Rome like John wanted, but he was a Frankish bishop. And as we've seen, the Frankish bishops very much thought of themselves as a power unto themselves, more beholden to their king slash emperor than to the pope. So Inkmar comes into conflict with the pope the same way that he did last time. And this is over appeals to Rome. In this case, it was due to a bishop under Inkmar's jurisdiction, Bishop Rothad II of Soissons. Now, although Inkmar was Rothad's metropolitan bishop, Rothad had been very outspoken against Inkmar's aggressive exercises of power over the bishops of the region and had appealed to the Pope over some of Inkmar's decisions. And as a result of this, Ingmar had him deposed in a synod in Swisson in 862. Ingmar also clearly didn't like Rothad and once referred to him as an unfruitful fig tree.
1: Oh, that is an insult.
0: It feels like a perfectly obscure insult that I wish I had the opportunity to throw at somebody. And so Rothad appealed to the Pope, which he had every right to do. And this irritated Inkmar so greatly that he had Rothad imprisoned. Nicholas had received Rothad's appeal and began investigating. But when he discovered that Inkmar was resisting the right of the appeal by imprisoning Rothad, it took on a whole new level of intensity. Let's not forget, the appeal to Rome was the right of any cleric, and a fundamental tenet of papal primacy, And Nicholas is going to come for anyone who is obstructing it. So he wrote to Inkmar and commanded, quote, by apostolical and canonical authority, that Rothad come to Rome and present his case. This annoyed the hell out of Inkmar, but he did begrudgingly comply, and the result was that Rothad was released from prison and restored to his bishopric. The best part of this is that we have the Annals of St. Bertrand, which were authored or overseen by Inkmar, and his tone about the whole situation is very clear. Rothad had been canonically deposed by the bishops of five provinces and reinstated by Pope Nicholas, not according to the rules, but according to an arbitrary and overbearing decision.
1: Oh my god, he's so salty! Five other people said no.
0: (laughs) That's exactly it. You almost made me spit out my... (laughs) But that's exactly it. He's choked. So, wait. That's a very Canadianism,
1: isn't it? It is. Jay gave me a lot of of
0: grief for saying choked,
1: so. You know he would. He gives everyone grief for everything. He hates joy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then I'm sticking with it. Inkmar was choked.
0: (laughs) There was also a second conflict, though, over the Bishop of Bourges, Wolfhad. Wolfhad had been a particular favorite of King Charles the Bald when he was only a priest. So when the bishopric of Bourges had opened up, the king had wanted Wolfhad to be the new bishop. You know, put your friends in powerful places. Fairly standard. But Inkmar absolutely opposed this move. And refused to consecrate Wolfad to the position on the grounds that Wolfad's ordination as a cleric was invalid. Inkmar is such a Karen? He is. He is such a Karen. That's perfect. Now, despite being a total Karen, Inkmar actually has some grounds here. You see, he, Inkmar's predecessor as Bishop of Roms was a man called Ebo, and Wolfad had been consecrated by Ebo. But Ebo ended up deposed a number of times. And when a bishop is deposed, oftentimes their ordinations are invalidated.
1: Why are they just being, like, kicked out all of the time here? Who are these people?
0: Uh, Frankish bishops, Fry. Uh, Frankish bishops. These hot dogs, they're bad at their job. So this definitely was the case here, by the way. So, And especially because when Inkmar became the Archbishop of Rons. His first act when he was consecrated was to invalidate all of Abbo's ordinations. So he's like, I know that your consecration is invalid because I was the one who invalidated them all. And so once again, there was an appeal made to the Pope and Nicholas reviewed the case and wrote to Inkmar advising him to set aside his reservations. Nicholas understood why Inkmar had refused Wolfhad You know, the validity of ordination was extremely important, as we will continue to see. But he was now instructing Inkmar to undo that condemnation and consider the ordinations of Ebo valid and to consecrate Wolfad to the bishopric. Now, look, this is not something we need to make a big deal out of. It's fine, I approve, so just go ahead and doing it. And again, despite not liking it one bit, Inkmar complied with the instruction and judgment of the Pope.
1: Good. He can just complain about it later. Oh, he would. So salty all the time. Those annals, amazing.
0: Now, that in itself over Wolfhead doesn't really feel like too much of a conflict. It's it's not very different from what we've seen before with other uncanonical depositions. But what becomes interesting in this case, though, is that in supporting the Pope's rights to pass judgment on any important legal case in the church, and to maintain the discipline of bishops at any level, Nicholas seems to have cited a series of documents. And while they would have provided an abundance of evidence to support what Nicholas was claiming, they are otherwise problematic. And these documents are known to us today as the false decretals, or the pseudo Isidorian decretals, called as such because the author called himself Isidorus Mercator. And they are a collection of forgeries, or at least partial forgeries, together sometime in the early 9th century that laid out supposed legal and canonical precedents defending bishops against authoritative encroachment of archbishops and to defend the primacy of the papacy and prevent secular influence in the church. Oof, that was a mouthful. Yeah, so basically these are documents that back up what the pope is arguing for, but they're not real. They're They're fake. These were presented as the writings of early popes, early doctors of the church, canons from councils, and even some cases, writing of the emperors. Like the donation of Constantine. Uh, <sighs> okay. And these documents will be used repeatedly in church history to defend the authority of the Pope and resist secular leaders from interfering in church oh, affairs.
1: Oh, yeah, okay. This is the section where they're like, and did you see the papal primacy? Yes, exactly, exactly. And this is
0: going to come up a lot. And it's important to note that at least as far as we know, when they are being cited, it's not like the popes are faking it. They probably legitimately thought that these documents were real. So there's that. But they get used a lot. And we know for sure by now that they are fake. When we start talking about false decretals or pseudo isidorian decretals, we're talking about things like the donation of Constantine. So there you go. Now, what we have already covered would have already been considered to be a relatively full episode and a relatively effective papacy. But we haven't even touched on the big pieces yet.
1: Oh, no, not even the big pieces yet. We're 40 minutes in. I know. <laughs>
0: This is what happens when we have a great, or a potential great, at least. So let's get into one of the most major
1: moments of Nicholas's papacy. And this is his vehement defense of marriage. Really into that marriage, huh? It becomes
0: so, so important. And all of this comes to a head thanks to King Lothair II of Lotharingia,
1: Lotharingia, <laughs> King John of Town. <laughs> well, that's exactly why it was named. It was named after Lothair I, so Lotharingia. You know, remember
0: when, when they had to divide up their empire because yeah, they were they fighting all divided, the time? Yeah,
1: they had to and they had little bits, and they fought some more. I get it.
0: So King Lothair II wants an annulment of his marriage to his wife, Tutberga. Oh, Tutberga! She's back. She's here. We're going to talk about her a lot. And he wants this annulment so that he could marry his mistress, Waldrada.
1: No. (laughs) Waldrada deserves better. So does Tootberga. Now, before Lothair was
0: married, he and Waldrada were allegedly already an item. He was then married to Tootberga to benefit his father, Emperor Lothair I, in shoring up defenses against his brothers particularly Charles the Bald. So during all of that conflicted period where they're all fighting each other, this advantageous marriage was made.
1: Yeah, gotta get married so that then her parents send you troops too or whatever.
0: Exactly. But in the first year of their marriage, Tudburga and Lothair had no children. That's not that long. It's not that long at all. And that's what is
1: so, so dumb about this.
0: But the key here is that Waldrada and Lothair already had a son.
1: Well, if they were lovers prior to this, it's not like... Yeah. It's not weird. You're making it weird, Lothair. He is making it weird. One whole year. You even try, Lothair? You even try? That's part on you, buddy. (laughs) He was probably never around. (laughs) And he was probably
0: making babies with Waldrada the whole time, so you know it's just it's just bad. And now that Emperor Lothair I died, and the political advantages of being married to to Berga don't matter anymore, this gives him an excuse, claiming that he was motivated to have an heir to maintain Lotharingia as its own dominion, to protect it from being swallowed up by his uncles Charles the Bald and Louis the German. Lothair is seeking an annulment to his marriage to Tootberga, so he can marry Waldrada and make his son his heir. Now, the grounds which Lothair used to petition for annulment were pretty grim. You see, he doesn't just say, hey, I want an annulment, we haven't had any children. He actually accuses Tootberga of having committed incest
1: before they were married. Well, that's... you've gone off the deep then, Lothair.
0: And this allegedly came from Tootberga's confessor, who claimed that Tootberga had confessed to him having committed sodomy with her brother, Hubert, the one we mentioned last week. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, you buying this? Mm Mm-mm. Neither are the Annals of Saint-Barton, which claim, Lothair hated his queen, Tootberga with irreconcilable loathing, and after wearing her down with many acts of hostility, He finally forced her to confess before bishops that she had had sodomite intercourse with her brother Hubert. For this crime, she
1: was immediately condemned to penance and
0: shut away in a convent.
1: Ah, so I see. I see they did the the forced confession. Yeah, they did.
0: And obviously, this is a total lie. And of course, Tutberga denies the charges and was even subjected to a trial by ordeal to prove her innocence. And we're talking about the ordeal by water, which is thought to literally be sticking your hand in boiling water
1: to prove Ooh, her innocence. what? Ouch. And during which, by the way, she was indeed declared innocent. Well, then, what about her hand? I hope she used the hand she doesn't use a lot. Yeah, I hope so, too. But, I mean, yikes. Yikes and bikes. Yeah, it's gonna hurt a lot. That's gonna hurt. Yeah, but she she at least
0: proved herself innocent because this is not something you want to go down in history for, you know, sodomite intercourse with your brother.
1: Hmm. Yeah, no.
0: So clearly unhappy that Tootburga had been cleared by this trial.
1: Well, how about you put your hand into burning water, Lothair? Yeah, He's,
0: he's so choked that she's been cleared by this trial by ordeal that Lothair turned to an ecclesiastical trial. So he's like, okay, this didn't work on a legal level. So I'm gonna convene a synod at Aachen to hear the incest charges. Ugh, what terrible what? No. No, he's he's gonna push for this. And remember again at this time that the Carolingian bishops were more inclined to serve the whims of the monarch rather than the Pope. And it was very, very evident that Lothair expected the bishops to find a way to turn his desires into a canonical judgment. Man, this is a hill he wants to die on. And also, this and subsequent synods on the matter were presided over by Gunther, the Archbishop of Cologne, and Tutgard, the Archbishop of Trier, who happened
1: to be Waldrada's uncle and brother, respectively. No, no, that's stacking the court. And those are the guys, by the way, that um, John of Ravenna decided to make an alliance with. That's why they all end up excommunicated again. But
0: clearly with Waldrada's brother and uncle running the show, you can imagine how this is going to go. Yeah,
1: it's going to go bad. The
0: synod concluded in favor of the annulment, and Tuberga was pressured into declaring that she go back to the convent as a nun. And Lothair married Waldrada. And Lothair, feeling very pleased with himself sent the decisions of the council to the Pope for approval. Hey, we had this council. Please approve it for us. (sighs) However, Tutberga also appealed to the Pope, making her the first known queen in history to send such an appeal to the Pope.
1: But surely she would not be the last.
0: There are going to be so many of these.
1: Just gets to be the first one. All the way to Catherine of Aragon, we're going to have so many of these. But she appeals
0: to the Pope. She's like, hey, this is so wrong. And even Inkmar spoke out against the Synod's decision and is on her side. Pope Nicholas is appalled to hear what's been going down in Lotharingia and wastes no time in writing to Lothair demanding that he put Waldrada aside and he sends two papal legates to Lotharingia to reevaluate the case in full. Meanwhile, Tutberga had fled to her brother for protection. I mean, not great considering the charges, but like, where else she going to go? But Lothair decides to change tactics at this point. He realizes, oh, the Pope is not going to confirm my synod. So he begins to argue that Waldrada was his wife in the eyes of God and that they had been married before he'd been married to to Tuberga, and therefore Tuberga was his invalid wife. And when the papal legates arrived, enough bribery exchanged hands that when they convened their synod at Metz in 863, the legates were uh, convinced of Lothair's argument, and they confirm his marriage to Waldrada. Well, when this got back to Rome, Nicholas is furious. And since his legates couldn't be trusted to evaluate the case, he summoned them back for a synod at the Lateran in October 863, at which he deposed and excommunicated them, essentially for dereliction of duty and as accomplices of bigamy. As the Liber Pontificalis puts it, grieving in his inmost heart, he mourned mightily over these errors. All the more when he heard that Tutgard and Gunther... The archbishops of Trier and Cologne had given the king such authority freely to dismiss Tutberga and lawfully to marry the concubine Waldrada. The blessed prelate had discovered that those who ought to have been his helpers and leaders before the Lord had been, through their giving of this authority, his betrayers to the everlasting fire. He's upset. He's really upset. And at the synod, Nicholas declared that in annulling his marriage to Tuberga, Lothair had violated the canon laws on the sacrament of marriage. In short, he was an adulterer. And by not recognizing that unassailable fact, both of the Carolingian synods had invalidated themselves and any canons that they had produced. The condemnation of these synods called them more like brothels as they favored adulterers. You slutty boys. Stop being such slutty boys. How dare you? He ruled that Lothair's marriage to Tootburga was entirely valid, that she was innocent of any wrongdoing. And he ordered Lothair to take back his wife on pain of excommunication. He just, like, straight up walked back that divorce in totality. None of this happened. You suck. Nope, none of it happens. Additionally, he also ordered that Waldrada had to leave Lothair's kingdom and come to Rome. Her judgment. This she did not do. She fled from Italy and went back to Lothair and was excommunicated. Now, in a letter to Lothair, Nicholas says, quote, "You have so consented to yield to the motions of your body, given rein to your passions, and cast yourself down into the forbidden, desolate pit and miry bog, that you, who had been set up to govern the peoples," have become the ruin of many. The legal case of the former bishops Tutgard and Gunther proves it because they instructed you most incompetently and moreover tried to conceal your transgression by their arguments and under a certain mask of justice to obstruct equity with certain falsified subtle inventions. They have been deposed by our apostolic authority and canonically barred from all Episcopal rule. Should you not be treated with vengeance unsheathed, you who are known with two wives to have aped the adultery and crime of Lamech? Take that in for a minute. Yeah, that's a lot. Not only is that a lot, he is straight up threatening a secular ruler with excommunication if he disobeys the Pope. He is ordering him to take his wife back, and he is addressing him down. Again, here, Nicholas is unequivocally asserting and defending the Pope as the sole authority to judge sacraments and all church affairs. Even more importantly, he is openly declaring that leaders who act in contravention to that authority can have their legitimacy invalidated. This is huge. And this is a point that Nicholas doubles down on by referring to Lothair as quote, King Lothair, if he may truly be called king, who refrains not from the appetites of his own body. Like, that's the title he gives him every time he writes a letter to the bishops or to the emperor or to anyone else. It's King Lothair, if he may truly be called king, who refrains not from his appetites of his own body. And again, this is reflected in the Annals of saint botin again authored by Inkmar, who comments, Lothair had been demented, so it was said, by witchcraft and ensnared in a blind passion by the wiles of his concubine, Waldrada, for whom he had cast aside his wife, Tutberta. Amazing. This is not generally how kings are spoken about in an annal, right? You don't no. generally call a king demented. Needless to say, Lothair was absolutely not expecting the Pope to clap back so hard, and he is absolutely livid. And so were the Carolingian bishops. Since they'd basically been deposed for participating in the condemned synods, they railed at Nicholas's forcefulness, writing, quote, The Lord Nicholas, who is called Pope, who pretends to be an apostle among the apostles, and who poses as emperor of the world. Wow. Again, they're mad that he is, he's actually, you know, making them answer to him. You could see why in this case they would have supported Lothair because he's the fount from which they're making their power grabs. But Nicholas is putting an end to that. They answer to him and no one else. But even Nicholas likely did not foresee what was going to happen next. Because in response to his threatened excommunication, Lothair went to his brother, Emperor Louis. And Louis is none too pleased to see the Pope deposing and excommunicating bishops of his realm or threatening to excommunicate his brother. And the two advance on Rome. Oh no, a fight. A literal fight. In the words of the Annals, quote, with the intention of having the two bishops reinstated by the Pope or if the Pope refused to act, laying hands on him to do him some injury. Going to catch these hands. Yeah, it's gone all the way up to the emperor marching on Rome to do the pope harm. This is like a huge, huge, huge escalation.
1: We're going to have to go with like some scandal here for sure. But Nicholas would not be
0: shaken, even by this, and prepared for the oncoming confrontation with fasting and service and public prayer to quote move the emperor to reverence, the authority of the apostolic see, And this, we're talking an actual siege here. Yeah. Like, men were beaten, churches were vandalized, and the pope was besieged inside of St. Peter's, according to Guido van Osnabruck, for 52 days with almost no food. The first two days, he had no food or water at all, and according to the Annals of saint bretin It was during a bitter cold spell.
1: Dang, they couldn't sneak in any Chipotle? There's no, like, skip the dishes or DoorDash or whatever American food delivery apps you're using. But
0: even this could not move Nicholas, who allegedly said, The Holy See does not change its mind. Let these men carry their shame. Ooh, wow. This is like Leo
1: the Great and Attila the Hun. Right? Like, we're seeing the parallels here. He didn't go out. He didn't go meet them. He just sat and his, got starved for a bit and went F- those guys.
0: Well, true. Yeah. And his unyielding resolve won out, as eventually, the emperor fell ill with a serious fever and began to regret his actions towards the pope. Oh, wow. Okay. So after some negotiations with the Pope through his wife, because he was too sheepish and too ill to appear in person, Emperor Louis straight up abandons the bishops and his brother's
1: cause and leaves Rome. That's fine. 52 days later and then he got sick and then they left. Cool. He left Lothair out to dry. Well, I mean, it wasn't that important. No, it was a terrible, terrible cause. And since Nicholas was
0: entirely firm in his demands, Lothair was forced to bring Tootburga
1: back and acknowledge her as his wife. Man, Tootburga, you better not not bang that man. You better just (coughs) be like, nah, you don't get that. You don't get all of this. It's funny you say that because the Pope even
0: rejected a plea from Tootburga herself, who was clearly so tired of the whole thing and just begged the Pope to grant the annulment so that she could just be away from this horrible man. He's like, no, stay strong. And he forbade her to relent because this was now an issue of principle that was like way beyond her. And he could not, he could not give in.
1: Ah, Nicholas, let's burger bee. But look, he's won. This is where the situation
0: is for the duration of Nicholas's papacy, cementing a huge win for the papacy as a whole and an absolute watershed moment. Like the significance of this moment absolutely cannot be overstated. We could dedicate several episodes discussing how this will impact all future relationships between popes and the Carolingian rulers, but we are going to see how that plays out episode to episode. The Franks. Oh, uh, yes. But this was not the only case in which Nicholas defended marriage either. Ironically, Tutberga's mother, Ingletrude, had left her husband which was Tutberga's father, Count Bozo.
1: Why can't this family just go to the seaside for their health? (laughs) Just let the ladies go? Well, she
0: had left her husband for a lover, and Nicholas also commanded her to return to her husband, again on pain of excommunication. She had ignored his instruction and the summons of bishops, and so she was excommunicated in a synod in Milan in 860, which also, by the way, is so full of goddamn sass.
1: Is that, is that, okay, I don't know. Is it really that bad, getting excommunicated? Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's, it's huge. You cannot receive any sacrament. Anybody who is within
0: communion of the church cannot talk to you, cannot sell anything to you, cannot engage with you for fear of being excommunicated themselves. Like this is an age where it's getting serious. This is an age where it matters. Yep. So this is what they said about her excommunication in the canons of the Synod of Milan. Ingletrude, daughter of the late Count Maffred, who abandoned her own husband Bozo and, look, has now, for about seven years, been running about here and there a vagabond. We recently lawfully anathematized, along with her supporters, but on account of her contumencies, we have thought it fit that she should again be knotted in the bonds of anathema. Now, on the flip side of this, Nicholas also defended the freedom of marriage and the right to marry for love. When the daughter of Charles the Bald, Judith, married without her father's permission to Count Baldwin of Flanders, she had been immediately excommunicated by the Frankish bishops, including Inkmar. But Nicholas, the Pope, then wrote to these bishops and advised that they reconsider, particularly now that the marriage would be valid in the eyes of the church law. And exceptionally progressively, Part of why this case was so important to him was to protect the concept of consent and free will in marriage.
1: I love that he cares about consent now, suddenly. Well, he cares
0: about consent all the way through. But remember, Toot Berga appealed to him saying, hey, this is being done to me and this is not okay." So he helped her through that and got the win. And she's like, I'm just done with this. And he's like, no, no, stay strong. But that's not all. We also have a whole other conflict that happened to be raging at the same time as Lothair's divorce controversy, and that is the beginning of the Photian schism.
1: A whole schism. A schism. We haven't had one of those in, in a while. Like, when's the last schism, honestly? Uh, probably the Aquilaean schism over the three chapters. That's right, three chapters.
0: But unlike other schisms that we've covered so far, this is much more of a political schism than a theological break, but it gets right at the heart of what Nicholas was selling his entire papacy, which is the jurisdiction of the Pope over the whole of the church. And this comes to a head when the Byzantine Emperor Michael III deposed and exiled the current patriarch of Constantinople, Ignatius in July of 857, for personal and political reasons. See, Ignatius wasn't deposed because he'd strayed from orthodoxy in any sort of way, but because he had actually upheld his office in a way that inconvenienced Emperor Michael. He'd uh, denied Michael's uncle communion due to some misdeeds, and he hadn't consented to the exile of Theodora and such like that. So he was just, he was actually doing his job well, And that inconvenienced the emperor, so he ends up deposed and exiled. That being said, historian J.J. Norwich indicates strongly that Ignatius wasn't very well-liked, calling him a, quote, blinkered bigot loathed by his flock who was determined to get rid of him. This was convenient for Michael, but it also had public support, even if Ignatius was doing his job. In his place, Michael elevates Photius, who is a very prominent and educated man, to be the next patriarch. But Photius was a layman. Or rather, he had been a layman up till he was set to actually succeed to be patriarch when he was made a monk, and then over the course of five days, he was successively ordained as a lector, a subdeacon, a deacon, a priest, And then Patriarch, so, you know, super legit.
1: Okay, that seems a little fast.
0: (laughs) A little fast. Between uh, December 20th and Christmas Day, you went from a layman to the Patriarch of Constantinople. All
1: right. Nice Christmas present. (laughs) Yeah, a very Merry Christmas indeed.
0: And of course, this looks suspect. Because it is, and it went against canon laws of ordination and consecration of the West. And even by Eastern standards that were a little less hung up on the idea of hasty consecrations, even then, it doesn't look great. And several clerics who supported Ignatius, the original patriarch, wrote to Pope Nicholas, denouncing Photius. So in Rome, Nicholas receives two letters. He receives one from Emperor Michael announcing that he has a new patriarch and he's looking for the pope to confirm his choice out of formality, and one from the bishops claiming that this man wasn't even legitimately ordained when he was made patriarch. And so by now, it should be clear which letter Nicholas gave more attention to. And frankly, Nicholas was not on board with the emperor thinking that he had the right to depose and install patriarchs. And so he writes to Michael, stressing firmly that temporal rulers have no place in religious affairs.
1: Separate the church and the state, brawl.
0: Absolutely. This is what he says. Every earthly ruler must keep himself as free from interfering in sacred matters as every soldier of Christ from temporal business. And this is just like one quote of many. He was like, this is not your job, this is my job, back off. He also sends two papal legates to Constantinople to gather information about Photius's status and report back without making a public decision. And most importantly, the Pope instructed that these two legates were to only engage with Photius as if he were a layman and not as if he were patriarch so that they're not hedging their bets or, or whatnot before the investigation is done. This is a man that is a layman. Treat him that way. In the eyes of the church, it had yet to be determined whether or not he was a legitimate patriarch. And it was very, very necessary to have a united front. And he even wrote to Photius himself and acknowledged that Photius had kept to an orthodox declaration of faith. Yes, you are an orthodox man. You are following religion correctly. But he makes it clear that he wouldn't consider nor confirm Photius as patriarch until the examination of his legates was complete. So the legates get to Constantinople. And when they arrive, they are not greeted as they expected to be. Photius wanted them to acknowledge him as patriarch, Right then and there, now on the spot. According to Horace K. Mann, they were threatened, pressured, and even potentially imprisoned to force them into this, but the Liber Pontificalis says that they were bribed into declaring that they accepted Photius as patriarch, which was then confirmed at a synod in Constantinople in 861, which is called the proto But... When the popes find out that his legates have confirmed Photius without, by the looks of it, any proper
1: examination, he is once again supremely annoyed. Man, you gotta stop just, uh, doing this without... What is with all of
0: these legates being so subject to bribery? Like, what is going on? Nicholas might have been great. We will decide. He may have had a grand approach to the papacy but he sucks at picking legates. So Nicholas calls a synod in Rome in 863 and once again demanded that the legates explain themselves to him. One of these legates, Zachary, admitted to overstepping and was deposed, but the other, rattled, didn't even show up. And so he was, of course, Pope Nicholas, excommunicated. Nicholas also completely nullified the legate's confirmation of Photius, and declared that the Constantinople Synod was invalid. He declared that Photius was deposed and excommunicated for an uncanonical consecration and presuming to hold the patriarchy, and that Ignatius, who had been uncanonically deposed, was officially reinstated as the recognized Patriarch of Constantinople, and that any who hindered him in doing so would also be excommunicated. So again, He's taking a, a very hard line here. And we have his own words on this. It is now clearly demonstrated that Photius took part in the schism. He left the world to be ordained bishop by Gregory of Syracuse, who had been deposed and excommunicated some time before. Like a thief in the night who enters the flock to steal away sheep, he usurped the See of Constantinople from our brother Patriarch Ignatius. Breaking his word, he convened a synod in which he dared to anathematize and depose our brother patriarch Ignatius. Acting against the law of the peoples, he corrupted the emissaries of this holy see and obliged them to scorn and disobey our commands. He persecuted, and to this date still persecutes, the church and ceaselessly inflicts terrible sufferings on the Holy Patriarch Ignatius, our brother. By the authority of Almighty God, the Apostles, Saints Peter and Paul, and all the saints, and the six general councils, the Holy Ghost pronounces this judgment through us. Let this Photius, guilty of so many crimes, be deprived of every priestly honor and every ecclesiastical function, let him be excluded without hope of re-entering the communion of the church. Let him be anathematized without receiving the body and blood of Jesus Christ, except in danger of death. Well, wow. Just no, we're not having this. We're not playing your game. You're out. And anybody who helps you is out. Again, a very hard line. And this went over poorly in Constantinople. Emperor Michael is pissed and threatened to invade Rome, but Nicholas wrote another letter defending the pope's ecclesiastical authority over all sees and informed Michael that if he wanted a different outcome, the emperor and the patriarch would have to come to Rome or send proxies to present their case. I hear all of the cases of all the sees and all the bishoprics and all the patriarchates, so if you want something different, come to me. Photius, however, did not retaliate, and did not criticize the Pope for his judgment. But this was mainly because if he condemned the Pope's judgment, he'd have to acknowledge the Pope's judgment. And he was currently doing his best to pretend it was not real and had never happened. So he just sort of carried on and continued to act as patriarch, as if he had never received this excommunication at all. And this in itself probably wouldn't have gone any further had it not been for Boris, the Khan of the Bulgars. I don't think we've mentioned the Bulgars before. So they are a nomadic pagan warrior tribe group in roughly the area that is now Bulgaria and Romania. And their king, Boris, had recently lost in battle to the Byzantine Empire. And one of the resulting eventualities of this loss was that Boris converted to Christianity and was baptized with the emperor as his godfather in 854 with the intent that he would then convert his people as part of the peace terms. And this was something that pleased the patriarch and the emperor. But when Boris's idea of conversion required that they acknowledge that the Bulgars were autocephalous And his demand that he wanted his own patriarch of the Bulgars, Photius and the emperor kind of cooled on their enthusiasm and denied Boris his wishes. And Boris clearly felt slighted, as he decided then to reach out to the pope and the emperor in the west and the Frankish kings in 866, asking for missionaries from them to be sent to his people so that he could learn about their Christianity and assist them in establishing a church in the Bulgar kingdom. Basically, Boris thought that maybe the Pope would give them a better deal. So they were shopping around their Christianity at this point. Are we gonna go to the Patriarch? Are we gonna go to the Pope? Who's gonna give us the better deal? So Nicholas is thrilled about this potential of a mass conversion of people, right? This is great news for him. And he sends a delegation of missionaries led by the new bishop of Porto, Formosus. Yes, that Formosus. We're gonna talk about him forever. And this is his first appearance. It's a big moment. Formosus is here and he's alive. And when Boris sent the Pope a massive letter containing over 100 questions about Christianity and how to live a Christian life, Nicholas took the time to write him back, answering every question in a massive document that gives us a very solid look into Christianity of the age. This was a massive undertaking, showing just how committed Nicholas was to assisting the Bulgars with Western Orthodox Christianity, laying out what was correct and condemning Eastern deviations. It is a hundred and six chapters and it is detailed. A hundred and six. It's long. And it, is, it exists online. So anybody can actually read exactly what Christianity was like in this era because of Nicholas giving Boris all of the answers. And, and Boris is like super happy. He has got the dedication and attention of the Pope who is really jazzed about the conversion of his people. And this is exactly the kind of attention that he wanted. And this also serves the Pope extremely well, further cementing that he, and he alone, has the right to administrate the universal church wherever it comes and wherever it grows. And Boris also happened to really, really like the missionaries who had been sent to him, especially Formosus. In fact, he liked Formosus so much that he was hoping that he could hold on to him for his archbishop of the Bulgars. Hey, we really like this guy. He's doing a great job converting our church. Can we just keep him? Can we make him our archbishop? But as I just said, Formosus was already the bishop of Porto. And we know you cannot hold two bishoprics. But we also know that Boris is shopping around his Christianity And so they don't want him to feel slighted and go back to the patriarch, as that would undermine Nicholas's message. So Nicholas just sort of tactfully calls Formosus back to Rome and sends new personally selected priests, hoping that perhaps Boris might latch onto someone else to be his bishop and avoid an issue. And this is where we're going to leave Boris for Nicholas's papacy, but this is going to come back. But... There are issues to be had here with this, because remember, we're discussing this in the context of the Photian Schism. So the Emperor and Patriarch in Constantinople were livid that Boris had just rejected them to turn to the Pope. And Photius, who is still acting as Patriarch, despite being excommunicated by the Pope, retaliates by convening a synod in 867, where he excommunicates Pope Nicholas... And the whole of the Western Church while he's at it. So he cites the grounds as heresy, as in converting the Bulgars to Western Orthodoxy, they preach certain things where the Western and Eastern Church differed, like like the Filioque. So basically, he's chosen this weakish reason to come at them full bore. And this puts us into like a full-blown schism. Photius has been excommunicated on the one side, but he's gone and excommunicated the entire Western church. And this is where we're going to leave it for the moment, because Nicholas died around this time and was never actually made aware of what Photius had done. So he never knew that Photius had issued a, an excommunication for him. It doesn't count then. Well, and of what we know about Nicholas, can you
1: imagine what his reaction would have been? He would have come for him. Yeah, he would have uh, fought him, maybe physically. I feel
0: like he would. I mean, look, he went to Ravenna after John. I feel like he would have shown up in Constantinople ready to throw some fists. I love this image. And it is so it is so on brand with Nicholas. So yes, I'm here for that. (laughs) So we'll come back to both Photius and Boris the Bulgar Khan next week. And we're going to quickly wrap up Nicholas's papacy with a brief look at his other missionary efforts. Obviously, the Bulgars were by and large his largest evangelization effort. But Nicholas also gives a fair bit of attention to the Northern conversion as well. Nicholas assented to the Union of Two sees, Bremen and Hamburg, into an archbishopric for Ansgar, our apostle to the north, who we've mentioned before, confirming that the archbishop who held that see, i.e. Ansgar and his successors, would continue to be the papal legate to all of the Scandinavian nations on the front line of conversion. He also wrote to the king of Denmark, Eric the Younger, or Horik II, urging him to convert, since he received Ansgar and his missionaries rather well hey, you seem to like us, why don't you join our team? Doesn't seem that Horrock did convert, but Christians were exceptionally well-tolerated in his court, and for the first time in Denmark, they were allowed to ring church bells. Positive relationship overall. But Pope Nicholas I died on November 13th of 867, and the Liber Pontificalis editor Raymond Davis comments that when he died, he was still under the age of 50. This incredibly powerful, incredibly influential Pope was a very young man. Wendy J. Reardon, in The Deaths of the Popes, elaborates further, saying he was probably around 40 and that he died from a stress-induced illness. So like a heart
1: attack yeah. or a stroke,
0: ulcers, you know.
1: Imagine, ugh, ulcers. And even if these numbers are
0: slightly exaggerated, this makes Nicholas an extremely young pope, statistically. Younger than even the young pope, because Lenny Bellardo was like 47. He's younger than even that jerk. He was buried in a white marble tomb in the atrium of St. Peter's near Benedict III, and it was destroyed for new St. Peter's, but fragments of the epitaph have been preserved enough for this inscription. Whosoever cometh to this temple hall, suddenly from eastern or western lands, or from the south or the cold north pole, wishing to know why the mortal race is still sad, carefully examine this poem and remember, the substance of the holy flesh of the outstanding Bishop Nicholas is preserved in this grotto. By his holy teaching, he shone before all men. He filled the world and shone by his chastity, his members unstained. Which is a little bit graphic. What he taught in his words, he accomplished by his abundant action. He remained full of light and was so learned in wisdom, the starry kingdom of heaven preserves him with brilliant triumphal processions so that the throne of the noble prophet, Popes, might flourish through the ages. That's a cute
1: epitaph.
0: Pretty good. I like it. And it's definitely a representation of how well he was liked and how well he was thought of which is a very good point because we have a lot to consider when
1: we rate him. Papatum infallium. I genuinely don't know
0: if we can do justice to everything that has to be discussed in this category, but we're going to do our best. Defending church stability. First off, Nicholas was exactly the level of unshakable conviction and force that the papacy needed in a time of massive upheaval across Europe and for the church. The state of the church he inherited was uncertain, divided, and inconsistent with nepotism and corruption and jurisdictional abuses, making even basic clerical discipline unclear. And he energetically got involved in every single one of these issues and not only rectified them, but used them to his advantage to shore up his power and influence of the Pope. So That's one. The next is, of course, that power of the pope, papal primacy, because Nicholas's concept of the role and authority of the pope wasn't new, but he used it to set a precedent that few popes could ever really do. He made papal primacy the realist it had actually been in centuries. This is our first real look at like a medieval pope who would fit the popular imagination of a medieval pope. And here's just some examples. He protects the right of appeal to Rome, which aggressive archbishops had been actively hindering. He, in the process, reestablishes clerical order and discipline and jurisdiction for suffragan bishops under these archbishops. So he's walking back this tradition of overstepping. He defends and exerts papal authority in every single see, including Constantinople. He defends the sacraments, particularly marriage, and his right to be the only one who can make judgments on sacraments and does not back down when he's actively threatened for it. He's the first to use excommunication in such a way to draw a line, even when it's super provocative to the point where it has, like, real practical social consequences. Historian J.J. Norwich also has a great quote for this saying, Nicholas marks a watershed. He was the last pontiff of any ability or integrity to occupy the chair of St. Peter for a century and a half. Which unfortunately tells us it's all downhill from here. And we're not even done. He fights for the separation between temporal and ecclesiastical authority that separation of church and state. We've talked about, you know, the difference between auctoritas, which is sacred authority of the priests, and potestas, which is temporal authority, since Pope Gelasius, but Nicholas is actually using it. He's pushing this paradigm further and harder. He is insisting vehemently and repeatedly that secular rulers, no matter how powerful, no matter how exalted, Or threatening should have any interference in church affairs whatsoever. They do not, cannot, and never will possess auctoritas. And to this point, although we didn't really have somewhere to discuss it earlier on, in that synod in Rome in 862, in the sixth synodal act, he also re evoked the decree of the Lateran Council of 769, forbidding secular interference in papal elections. But he also makes clear to the temporal rulers of Christendom that as Pope, he's responsible for ensuring and maintaining their spiritual morality. For it is through the values of Christianity that rulers are granted the potestas to govern. Therefore, if a king doesn't conduct himself morally and in an orthodox fashion, the Pope may invalidate their legitimacy to rule, like we saw him with Lothair. So, like, this is big. The Pope, as this supreme moral authority, can advise and influence people to resist an immoral ruler as a tyrant, which is going to have huge consequences for the growing power of the papacy and the claims of rulers. In a letter to Emperor Michael, sums this up himself by the power of god we have been born the sons and heirs of the apostles peter and paul and though in merit far beneath them we have been constituted princes over all the earth and universal church for the earth means the church thanks ridley
1: the earth means the church (laughs) ridley is
0: pope nicholas yelling about the church
1: and although this is
0: less important but is important in the grand scheme because we are comparing him to the greats, he lived a life of example to all clerics and resembled Pope Gregory the Great in his asceticism to the point where he was often sick. We have a snippet from a letter he wrote that just screams Pope Gregory, quote, with such pain has our heavenly father seemed fit to afflict me, That not only am I unable to write suitable replies to your question, but I cannot, through the intensity of my sufferings, even dictate an answer to them. This man is, like, fasting all over the place, just like Gregory.
1: Okay, well, that would definitely, like, screw up a bunch of stuff. And
0: and lead you to die in your 40s from a stress-related illness? Yeah, was it stress
1: or was it, uh, not eating properly? Was it all of the above? Every single bit of it. This is massive. He is, in every way, an
0: example of everything that a pope should be. He is the first real medieval pope with that authority. He is prepared to invalidate secular leaders.
1: Like, there is no way this isn't a 10. See, I was leaning towards 9 because I just, I'm not feeling the perfect score for him, you know, for whatever reason. Like, he did great, right? But... People kept finding things to be shitty about, so he just had to fight more people. And it's like, yeah. if he really had a handle on it, he wouldn't have to keep putting out all these fires. But is that his fault, or is that the fault of the papacies that have come before it, like Benedict Third
0: and Leo IV and Sergius II, who were not really in charge and didn't
1: score well as a result and had to deal with massive secular influence? <sighs> I mean he claws all of that back. He does, and he did commendably, honestly, but I feel like <laughs> giving him the he doesn't deserve the perfect score. Okay. Okay. Alright, well, we'll give him that, so then you'll give him a nine and he'll get a nineteen in Hapatumophalium. We're gonna get so many angry tweets about this. <laughs> Guess what? Yeah. I don't run the social media. Oh, but I will screenshot and send you. Oh no. <laughs> You've brought this on yourself. Fructus prohibitum.
0: So the only thing really we could consider here is the potential use of the false decretals to bolster and defend his positions on papal primacy. But we can only do this if he had known that the decretals contained forgeries. He didn't know they were fake. We might want to consider that he was falsifying and manipulating papal precedent to increase his own ambitions. However, like we saw when we dealt with Pope Joan, there are plenty of documents that come into existence through the 8th and 10th centuries that may have been forgeries, but at the time were absolutely accepted as truth. And this is the case for the decretals. Historian Horace K. Mann argues that the documents had been accepted as truth for centuries before even the slightest suspicion of forgery was aroused. So if Pope Nicholas had used the decretals, He would have considered them genuine, and there's no evidence to exist or considered otherwise. And, more importantly, historian Heinrich Schors, who dedicated extensive research to the false decretals, argues that Nicholas might have not used them at all, or even known that they existed. He argues that if he was aware of them, then one, he would have taken them as fact, and two, that his knowledge would have been general and not direct considering them part of the corpus of all sorts of papal decrees and canonical documents. And aside from Nicholas, the decretals don't really become a powerful political tool until the 12th century, so the extent that we can judge them to be used in this time is spurious at best. He may have used them, he may not. He might have known that they were fake, but probably not. Is there points here? Maybe like one. I am going to let you give him the one point in this category that you should have given him in the last category
1: and just leave it as a one. Secular Rai impactum. So
0: most of what would go here, we've already discussed in Papatum and Valium, right? He's checking the power of the strongest secular rulers of the age. And he comes out on top of this, even in the face of a siege. And like... The conflict between Lothair and the Pope absolutely cannot be overstated. And every relationship from this point on between the Carolingians and the Papal States is going to be influenced and affected by the resistance of Pope Nicholas against this divorce. And as our academic hero of the show, Dr. Rutger Kramer, points out, all of our sources from the Carolingian side are also going to be colored by their involvements in the matter. So this does not just go away. This is major, and it is going to set many tones moving forward about power dynamics. He also, and this is important for Seculari Impactum, increased the enthusiasm of the Bulgars in converting to Christianity with a direct and personal response to their many questions about Christian theology and how to live a Christian life. If it had not been that, we might not have an entire nation of converts. So if we're talking about secular impact, massive. And although we didn't have as much time to cover it because of all the big stuff, he also rebuilt and founded many churches and refortified the defenses at Ostia in case of future Muslim incursion,
1: which we have seen before.
0: So again, really, really big. <laughs> what
1: would you like to give
0: him in this one?
1: Let's let's go with another nine.
0: Alright, you could give him a 9. I'm giving him a 10 because I the divorce issue between him and Lothair and him standing down a siege and then also converting the Bulgars gives him a full score. If he didn't have the conversion pieces, I would have agreed with you about an 8 or a 9. But the big conversion brings him over the edge.
1: Fascium Sanctus. Alright. So, this man was supposed to be in his
0: 40s or 50s, but the, the artist who paints St. Paul's outside the walls, didn't get that memo.
1: No. Oh. It's a look. Yeah. God, he does not look like a 40-year-old man. He does not. He is way
0: more bald than most of our popes have it's been. There are no stress.
1: Bunny yeah. He does look very stressed, don't you think? Uh, yeah, he looks like, um, you know when you get overstressed and you just sort of, like, stare into the void?
0: He is absolutely staring into the void here.
1: Yeah. yeah. And he's thinking about the food that he's not eating as well. And you can see all of, I don't know, you can see all the sinews on like his neck. like, And then his, he's got really gaunt cheeks. He's like yeah. got a pulsating vein on his forehead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't notice that too. And the
0: shading is really... um it's really inconsistent on the lower half of his face, so it kind of looks. They gave up. Really saggy, yeah. It's it's not like a shadow. It's like saggy, pocked, sunken areas. He looks real stressed
1: out. This is the one, unfortunately, we have to rate him on. So what are Damn. we thinking? For- wow, no, like he looks. You know, you know that, um, you know that statue of Saint uh, God. With his night skin. Saint Bartholomew. Oh, the super muscly one? Yes, this looks like him after he put his skin back on. (laughs) Well, then what you're saying is that he looks very
0: saintly. And by the way, that statue for anybody who wants a reference is Saint Bartholomew Flayed, and it's in Milan. He's put the night skin back on. Actually, I'm looking at the two images together. And yeah, it, it it
1: unfortunately really does. <laughs> it just because you know, and that would account for the weird saggy under the chin, <laughs> like the Edgar suit in Men in Black. Yeah, he's got an Edgar suit on. Okay,
0: well, you have convinced me to bump up whatever I was going to give him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so what's it worth? <laughs> now he's an alien. All right. Um. Anyway. <laughs> I don't know. I'll give him like a, well, he's very, he's very striking in his, uh, <laughs> in whatever. I would not want to meet this man on the street. I'll give him like a seven. <laughs> okay. I see. I, you know, I'm going to have to match you on that.
0: Cause initially I was thinking like a five, it's kind of middle of the road, but
1: then we've gotten all the way
0: back to my favorite statue of St. Bartholomew in an Edgar suit. So yeah, he'll get a 14 when divided by four, that gives him a 3.5. But we have some more images. There's this great one from a Carolingian painting that I can't identify, but... Oh, it's just great. Here, I'll just... (laughs) Oh, God! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that sound. That sound you just made is exactly right. (laughs) Okay, um... (laughs) You know here he's he's listening to Lothair try to justify his
1: marriage because his eyes are rolled so far back into his head. It's like he didn't eat enough and he fell asleep. <laughs>
0: well, that's also Pope Nicholas. <laughs> All right. So there's that one. I also have one. This definitely looks more like the 40 or 50 year old man that he is alleged to be. But he still has, just like the first and second picture, a look of like deep, stressed out, void,
1: staring despair. <laughs> yeah, he does. Well, OK, so so we've got the the sort of jowly thing. And again, it's one. the Edgar suit. <laughs> the Edgar suit is really saggy. Yeah, even the one, the one above is like that. His face isn't fitting right. He has stretched out his night skin. It's probably time for a replacement.
0: Yeah, seems about right. Tempest Pontificus. April 24th, 858 to November 13th, 867. Nine years and a score of 2.25. This goes to show how much was all happening at once, because Leo the Great had 21 years to accomplish roughly the same amount of stuff, and Gregory the Great had 14 in which to accomplish what he did. So this man who is held up to these standards had way less time. Nine years.
1: I need to go back to the photos you posted of the bad artist, <laughs> okay. and they've got his little symbol up in the corner, and it reminds yes. me of a flump. A flump? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? Okay.
0: Is This is a D&D thing, right? It is.
1: Okay. Because I'm like, I kind of want one of those. Maybe that would be a good pet. No, they eat psychic energy and get sad easily. Aw, well, maybe that would be perfect for him because, you know, (laughs) his psychic energy is being drained on a regular basis. That's true. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. Yes, he is a
0: saint for the first time in a long time. His feast day is November 13th. And after his death, he was recognized as a popular saint, but was officially canonized in the 17th century by Pope Urban VIII. But he is not a patron saint. No? No. St. Nicholas of Myra, punchy old St. Nick, got all the patron sainthoods for Nick. And like we said, maybe this is the real punchy old St. Nick. So, yeah, he's a saint. So, we get to make him (laughs) this man... Punchy old real Saint Nicholas, the patron saint of something.
1: Physical manifestations of stress.
0: <laughs> Physical manifestations of stress? Yeah. Okay. He's going to get a lot of attention for that because they are everywhere. Physical manifestations of stress are everywhere these days. No one is not stressed. <laughs> Maybe this is going to make him better known and then he'll finally get his official greatness. So that brings us to his total score, which is a Very, very impressive. 45.75, which, for the record, puts him in sixth place overall. Comparatively, we have, for our greats, we have Pope Leo with 51.25 in fifth place. And Gregory the Great with 52 in third place. So he is within... Just a couple points of, of our big man. So that brings us to our final and important question, which this time has two parts. And the first part is, is he papally enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull? I'll give him the bull. Oh yeah, it's, it's gotta be a bull. He is 100%, hundo percento, a bull Pope.
1: What is he great? I would say that he is better than good, but I wouldn't say (laughs) that he is great.
0: So you don't think he deserves to be the third great pope in history? He doesn't hold up to you for you with Leo and Gregory? Hmm. No. I mean, I feel like for me, I could have given it to him. Given how much he does, I don't know. He can be our first deluxe Pope. (laughs) Okay. You know what? I am on board with that. So from now on, for all of history, Pope Nicholas gets to be Pope Nicholas the Deluxe. And I am putting this
1: on his
0: scorecard because it will matter. So congratulations, Pope Nicholas, on both your papal bowl. And being deluxe. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> which brings us to the end of the episode. And so as we leave, we have some thank yous to make. So first off, thank you as always to Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium for being our inspirations and our biggest supports. And thank you, of course, to Dr. Rutger Kramer for his help when dealing with all of this. And Dr. Clemens Gantner, who is another amazing academic who definitely, definitely helped source stuff for this period. And we also have a patron to absolve of their temporal sins.
1: So thank you very much to Christiana O'Brien.
0: Ego te
1: absolvo. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifaxpod at gmail.com. And we're Pontifex Pod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifex on Patreon checking out our research wishlist at taniurlcom slash pontifax wishlist, or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifaxpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference.
0: And with that, we could say thank you and
1: goodbye. Bye.